All right. So, uh, lots of our fairy tales were written to teach some sort of moral lesson uh, by showing the dangers that await uh, for those who behave poorly. Now, these stories, even when filled with some extreme examples, display how things like selfishness, pride, greed, and what have you usually usually come, or at least should come, (laughs) with terrible consequences for the offenders. Now, in in contrast, uh, the Old Testament um, contains an inspired account of true events that really happened to God's people. But in similarity, Paul said that at least some events in the Old Testament were not only written down, but even that they occurred under God's sovereignty in order to teach the church about our life with the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 7 to 13, Paul draws uh, several examples uh, for uh, from the wilderness narrative to demonstrate why those within the church must be on their guard against temptation when God's people as a whole drift towards temptation and even give in to those temptations, well, judgment comes upon the community. And the particular danger as follows on the argument that is outlined throughout chapters 8 to 10 as a whole is that our poor conduct or unwise use of Christian liberty can cause those who have not yet come to faith to be driven from our churches or cause those with weak faith to be overwhelmed by temptation. First Corinthians is Paul's address to a congregation struggling with a stack of pastoral issues. They had lost sight of what gospel ministry was supposed to be and to accomplish. They had let church discipline run amok so that ungodliness was prevalent. It seemed also that some were using theological arguments in order to justify debatable behavior that they wanted to indulge. In chapters 8 to 10, Paul took on that issue of Christians eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. Some in Corinth argued that since since idols are are just statues and and not real gods, it it does not matter if we eat food sacrificed to them. And and Paul conceded a, a theological point that the idols aren't real, but argued that Sometimes we have to give up even theologically grounded rights in order to preserve our brother or sister in the faith. In the end, however, letting ourselves flirt with questionable practices is only to the detriment of our weaker brothers and sisters. Indeed, even the one who thinks themselves strong in the faith is liable to fall we can find ourselves unexpectedly trapped in temptation when we thought that we were on sure footing. The main point, as we think about this passage, is that the Old Testament records show that all of God's people need to be acutely aware to avoid temptation. The Old Testament record shows that all of God's people 
need to be acutely aware to avoid temptation. Our first point as we think about this is the the examples. So I noted how Paul brings out a list of examples from the Old Testament of of the point he's trying to make. And so so this this first point here uh, unpacks how Paul draws four examples from the Old Testament about how God's people succumbed to great sin. And these serve as warnings for the church community even still today. Now, I want to start by highlighting two pivot points in in this section because I, I think noting these things helps us grab hold of the main point of, of a passage. So the first hook that I want to give you is, is right there in verse 6 where Paul highlighted that these things, so the Old Testament events, took place as examples for us. So he listed four more examples after after he said that, but summarized uh, that same point uh, again in verse 11, which helps us see that that is one of the hooks. So in verse 11, he circles back to it and says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so, so the first pivot is that the Old Testament events occurred and were written down to instruct the Christian church. That's the first pivot. The second pivot is the exhortation that Paul pulled out of those examples in verse 12. And there he wrote, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So all the all these old covenant examples drive home the point that we must not become too secure in our practices lest we fall into temptation and sin. Now, okay, so we, we've got hold of our, our pivot points. These are examples that occurred and are written for the church, and we should take heed of them lest we fall uh, like they did. But now let's run through these examples, and and I'm, I'm not going to spend ages on this. I just want to note what they are uh, for you and how, they, how he pulls them out of the Old Testament. So first, uh, the first example in verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, and then he quotes, right, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So so the exhortation against idolatry is, is very obvious, don't be idolaters like some of them were, but, but the citation there is from Exodus 32, verse 6. Now, I'm guessing all of you know exactly what's happening in Exodus 32, but just for my own sake so I can remind myself, uh, that's part of the incident of the golden calf, right? So Israel uh, has, has made a little golden statue to signify, actually to signify the true God, and yet it is still an idol because they are worshiping 
God other than he has commanded us to worship him. By doing this, Israel, uh, as a people, almost entirely fell into idolatry, even as they tried to worship the true God, but in the wrong way. And because of their idolatry, they died. Right, so second second example. In verse 8, Paul referred to Numbers 25, okay, when Israel uh, yoked herself to an idol, a Baal, at Peor. So in light of the fact that they, they aligned themselves with this idol, a plague came upon Israel and killed 23,000 of them. So we, we know that Paul is re- referring to uh, that story because of the number of people. That's when 23,000 uh, died. That, yeah, it's a significant n- number there, and that's where it comes from. Uh, then the next example, in, in verse 9, Paul referred to Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9, when uh, they complained. So the nation complained against the Lord that they left Egypt to die in the wilderness. Uh, And because of their complaints about this, uh, in response, God sent poisonous snakes among the people, uh, and the snakes bit them, and they died. So that's, that's our third example. And then lastly, in verse 10, uh, yeah, in verse 10, uh, the grumbling, so, so the issue there is the grumbling, and Paul is alluding to Numbers 11, which, fortunately for us in God's good providence, Andy well exposited that very chapter recently concerning how Israel Grumbled. And now the link for us is in that word grumbling. The Greek verb in, in verse 10 and in Numbers 11, 1 are the same. Now the ESV actually translates Numbers 11, 1 complained rather than grumbled, but they are the same. Um, trust me on that. They, they complained though about the manna. And so in response, God sent all of these quails that they ate but then eating them made them sick. And as expected by this point in the list of examples, they died. Right. So there are four examples. Right? This point is about the examples and the four examples of how the covenant community became drawn into various sins because some people... Some people pursued their evil desires, and yet we are not to desire evil as they did. So those are our examples. And our second point is the exhortation. So the, the, we've already highlighted actually the, the central exhortation in this passage, and that it is stated pointedly in verses 11 and 12. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, right, when we come to a therefore, we always have to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Uh, And it's signaling to us to draw an inference, 
right? Because of what I just said, I need to do something or, or think about something else. And that's what he's signaling for us here. Because of these examples, I need to tell you what to do in response. Therefore, because of these examples, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The church is to see these events that he just discussed as examples for our warning and instruction. And we are to take note of how easily God's people can be led astray, else we become prideful and fall ourselves. Now, what I want to do here is focus in on one instance from this list to draw out some implications for how we might see this in our lives. Uh, So when Paul referred to Numbers 25, uh, which is, again, where that count of 23,000 died comes from, Paul wrote in verse 8, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, the reason I want to highlight that one is because, interestingly, the account in Numbers records the events of idolatry. But in Numbers 25, it does not associate it with sexual immorality. But Paul links the two. And I think we have to think about why. The first thing we can say is that this link is actually important within the scope of 1 Corinthians, right? After uh, we've we've thought about the the things going on in in this letter, and we've recapped uh, those issues as well, uh, because we've seen the revolving issues that he addressed were related almost cyclically, uh, you know, in, in a uh, uh, revolving pattern, were related to sexual immorality and idolatry. Right? We see, we see the sexual immorality coming up repeatedly in the in chapters five to seven, and then idolatry is is right in focus here in chapter eight. And Paul saw those two things as connected. In other words, there's actually not much of a gap between false conceptions of God and sexual misconduct. There is not much of a gap between false conceptions of God and sexual misconduct. And I think we can we can grasp that uh, if we consider I mean, even our concrete experience as Christians, knowing other Christians. In my time as a Christian, um, I mean, I've had sad times, just numerous times of counseling those who were wanting to continue in sin and justify it. In, in every single instance that I can remember, it was almost impossible to untell whether their immorality, 
and, and I, I suppose love for their immorality more specifically, what was whether that was driving them to revise how they understood God or whether a newly distorted view of God had then distorted their morality. Almost uh, always, in these cases that I'm thinking of, the immorality involved was sexual in nature. And what that tells us is that our doctrine and our practice is not as distinct as we might sometimes pretend. I think this raises an opportunity to explain, uh, you know, approaches that that preachers take. And, you know, maybe some of you may have wondered why I bang on and on about theology as often as I do. Right. It may not seem immediately obvious. uh, And I get that to you why it's necessary on a Sunday morning, on a Sunday evening, to point out and emphasize various doctrinal points as we work through the scriptures together. Get to the application. Tell me what to do, right? That's the main thing. But but maybe now you can see a little more clearly why I do that. Every little doctrine, every little reminder or explanation of our confession, every little extra aspect, I try to hand you to to make our thinking about doctrine just that much more precise is meant to act as further stabilization for the way that you think about God. God's people are easily knocked off kilter. We are easily like wobbly tables. Right? When something gets uneven at the bottom, I mean, it only takes somebody gently knocking us with their knee to send us rocking. If proper care is not given, we can become so wobbly that all the food and drinks that we are meant to bounce are sent flying across the room. And just like we put pieces of wood uh, or, or some, some odd other thing that you might use, just like we put something under the, the feet of our tables to straighten them out, to balance them, so that they aren't wobbly. So we teach doctrine because it is meant to stabilize you in everything that you are meant to balance. God gives us very various responsibilities and calls us to moral faithfulness in all the roles that we have. And so, because of that, we need more and more facets of God's glory propping us up so that we do not grow continually wobbly and fall into immorality. And so we focus ourselves on God 
so that we might see sin for what it is. We, we mind our ethics because poor ethics will distort our view of God and who he is, what he's done for us. We mind our view of God because a distorted view of God will distort our ethics. They go hand in hand. The exhortation is that we must all take heed. Never give an inch. Right? Doctrine and ethics, because the whole Christian life of the whole community is at stake. And that brings us to our third and final point. And I suppose that can, yeah, the middle point's always the bad news, I think. Uh, and that can leave us a bit disheartened. Um, and so our third point is the encouragement. And we are glad that Paul does not leave us without hope in this exhortation. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, although the church must be diligent in watching our doctrine and life so that we are not led from our God, neither, though, should we fear that this is an impending danger that will overtake us as individual believers. God will not let sin overwhelm his true people as though we can never come back from from it. Right? After all, even if we, even if we consider the things that he has reminded us of, in, in Exodus 32, for those who left their sin with the golden calf to stand with Moses, the old covenant mediator, who, who stood between the people and the curse of the Mosaic law, for them, there was rescue. In Numbers 25, for those who saw the emptiness of idols, and forsook them. There was commendation. In Numbers 21, for those who looked to the to the bronze snake held up by Moses, for them there was healing. And so, for us, who repent, and who find shelter with Christ, For those who leave their former lusts, for those who look to the Savior, lifted up once on the cross and exalted now in heaven, for us there is rescue, forgiveness, hope, and healing. In Christ we are safe even if we are not safe in ourselves. He will keep us. He will uphold us. Temptation may come, but God is faithful. God is faithful and not permit us to be overwhelmed by temptation. 
He has given his son for our salvation. He will be faithful to preserve us to the end. Let's pray. Father God, we are glad to know that we are not the first among your people to struggle with temptation. We are glad to know that indeed we are not the first among your people to have given in to temptation. But we pray that we will not be those who had not faith, who had weak faith, who were wrecked, who were not significantly off balance by temptation. We pray that you would make us stronger, that you would help us to see sin for what it is, emptiness, It will not fulfill. It will not satisfy. But our Savior will, who offers us living water that will never end, that we may never thirst. He offers us everlasting life, life with you in full communion with our Maker. And we pray that we will find our value and our satisfaction there. And we pray that in light of those things, we will live well for our neighbors who may, who may be struggling with temptation. And so we ask that you would help us not to flirt uh, with these temptations, that we would not seek to get as close to sin without entering it as we could, but indeed that we will use our freedom for the benefit of our brothers and sisters next to us. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.